0: Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our exposition of Matthew, moving ever closer to the crucifixion of Christ in Jerusalem. Though the crowds were still on his side at this point, Jesus infuriated the religious leadership more and more every day, confronting, challenging, and exposing them all throughout the temple precinct. Never before had the scribes and Pharisees been subjected to such scrutiny. Never before had the elders and the chief priests been put to such a test. And they didn't have the answers. No, for the very first time, they were looking up at someone else. And that did not go over. That's why they continually sought ways to seize and silence Christ. Because with every new day and every new teaching, Jesus condemned the religious elite for their hypocritical observances, their failed leadership, and their rejection of God's Son. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now this parable of the marriage feast, as it is called, is the third of a triad of tales that condemn the religious establishment. First, Jesus compared the responses of two different sons. When instructed by his father to go work in the field, the first son had absolutely no interest in the proposal. He was reluctant, he was hesitant, even outright defiant, opposed to the very thought for a time. But afterward, he so regretted his disobedience, he turned in repentance, rose to his feet, and went out in that field. Jesus was referring there to the tax collector and the prostitute who at the outset wanted nothing to do with the living God. They defied and rebelled and said no to the Lord at every turn. But then, after a time of treachery, Christ Jesus opened their minds, changed their hearts, and caused those first sons to Believe. Oh, but the second son in his story had a much different response. Immediately upon hearing the instruction, he said, Yeah, of course I'll go to work the fields. Father, that's the kind of guy that I am. But his was all talk with no action. Those are the religious leaders in Jesus' story who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly they're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As Matthew puts it quite simply, they say things and do not do them. In the parable of the two sons, Jesus condemned the scribes and the chief priests for offering hypocritical lip service instead of real obedience to the Lord. He followed that indictment then with another, this one accusing them of mistreating the prophets and murdering the son. That was the parable of the landowner and the wicked tenants, recorded at the end of chapter 21, where Jesus likens the religious leaders to vine growers who not only beat and bloodied the master's slaves, but killed the heir to steal his inheritance. That's what they were in the process of doing right in this very moment. And Jesus told them what would result. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruit of it. That was the second parable in this triad followed soon after by this one about certain guests who were invited to a marriage feast. As we have discussed on any number of occasions before, we are at a relative disadvantage when we read these stories in our modern day because those Jesus addressed in the middle part of the first century understood this culture and custom in a way that is quite foreign to us. His original hearers could easily identify themselves as one of these characters. They were familiar with the expectations of the time. And after relaying the tale to them, well, it would have needed no further explanation. In fact, by explaining this parable at all, we cannot help but compromise its impact. Because the very genius of it is its ability to teach and convict without any explanation at all. Still, because we are so very far removed from the culture and the context, we must examine it more carefully to appreciate what Christ was teaching about the kingdom of God. First, we must recognize that the king throws his feast in order to honor the son. Take a look back at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son." As Jesus sets the backdrop for this story, he speaks of a tremendously important, highly anticipated, and joy-filled occasion. Not just a royal banquet, which would have been something on its own, but a feast thrown by the king to celebrate the marriage of the country's crown prince. That's how Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven to these leaders of Israel. It's the feast to end all feasts. The most grand and glorious occasion focused specifically and exclusively on honoring his. Son. Now, why is that so important for Jesus to establish at the outset of his story? Well, because the son was being so disgracefully dishonored by those who claimed to be subjects of the king. They said, in no uncertain terms, we don't want the sun. We don't need the sun. In fact, we're going to kill the sun. So our position in the kingdom can be advanced. I mean that's what the chief priests and Pharisees were scheming as revealed to us in the previous parable. Let's get rid of the air. They said, so we can gain his inheritance. Jesus says, you got it all wrong, friends. The kingdom of heaven isn't about you. It's not about your gain and your glory. I mean, that's how most people approach it but it has never been its focus. No, this entire God thing is about seeing the Son exalted. He's the cornerstone. He's the centerpiece. And even from the king's perspective, It all revolves around him. Now, no doubt Jesus is speaking here with reference to himself as the royal heir, the crown prince and the bridegroom for whom a wedding feast would be perfectly appropriate. So let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. As we are commanded in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are you there? No doubt the king throws his feast to honor the son. Yeah, but when it came time to attend, those who were invited initially refused to come. Now take a look back at verse 3. The king sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves Saying, tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now when preparing for a feast of this magnitude the host would dispatch servants to pass out invitations several days, perhaps several weeks, in advance. The king has invited you to his son's banquet. Well then, once everything was finally readied, the servants would go again to inform their guests that it was the appropriate time to travel that was their custom and it 's the process that Jesus describes here. But as these slaves began to canvass the community, they were met with quite an unexpected response. Those who had been invited to the wedding feast before were now unwilling to come. Question is, why? Why, after all the anticipation, after all the build-up, all the prep work had been done, why would they refuse the invitation? It seems unthinkable to skip out on this once-in-a-lifetime celebration. But that's how the religious leaders responded. That's what the nation of Israel did as a whole. Because they took the invitation for granted. They never appreciated how lavish this feast. They stopped believing the messengers God sent to them. And they Absolutely hated the sun. So rather than come and join in the festivities, the entire guest list decided to stay home. How can you imagine how great an insult that is to the Lord? that when the banquet hall was finally opened, his chosen people refused to enter in. I can't imagine how great an insult that is to the Lord. Yeah, but even after their outright and wholesale rejection, God continued to offer them opportunity after opportunity. Opportunity making sure they understood just how great this feast would be and how crazy they would have to be to miss it. Even after they proved unwilling, we are told in verse 4, the king sent out other slaves. He went to them again to tell those who had been invited before, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. What an incredible grace of God to go again and again and again to this people with an invitation. It's going to be worth it. Everything's ready. Come. And partake. I'm not sure. The guy's asking. Anymore. That sounds more. Like a demand. And indeed. That's exactly what we see. At the end of verse 4. A second person plural. Command. In the imperative mood. And the active voice. Come to the wedding feast. Yet still, the religious minded in Israel refused, citing any number of reasons. Some just shrugged off the affair with complete and total indifference. They paid no attention and went their way having disregarded, ignored, or even made light of the banquet, as the King James would suggest. Others missed out because they had more important things to do. What are those more important things? Apparently, shoveling manure on their farms and selling a few more trinkets in the marketplace. This is what people prioritize over the kingdom of heaven? I think we aim a bit too low, huh? I mean, the scribes and Pharisees certainly had. Refusing God's gracious invitation with apathy, mundane excuses, and violent mistreatment of his messengers. No doubt this is another reference similar to the one we saw last week to the abuse of the prophets by the elitists in Israel. Sure, these men paraded around as citizens of the kingdom, but they so hated the king and his son that they beat, stoned, and murdered those who reminded them there was an invitation outstanding. And as gracious as God has proven to be, friends, and he has proven to be incredibly gracious, but as gracious as God has proven to be, that rebellion will not go unpunished forever. No, eventually, his patience will come to an end as it did in the case of these disinterested, unwilling, violently opposed apostates of Israel. For as we are told in verse 7, the king then became enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. We make... A grave error. when we mistake God's kindness for weakness, assuming His mercy will never reach its breaking point. I assure you, friends, that for those who defy and rebel, there is a limit. a limit that you cannot possibly come back from once it has been reached. That's what happened to the nation of Israel as a collective. About 10 years after Matthew wrote these words, in fact, the Lord sent an army, unleashed his arsenal, and set the entire city of Jerusalem ablaze. Because this people refused to come and honor his son Jesus when he called. Do you see? The king throws his feast to honor the son. But those who were invited initially refused to come. So? the king extended the invitation to men and women who would respond appropriately. Take a look now at verse 8. Then the king said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And when the slaves first made their rounds and found no one at all who was willing, their initial respondents might have assumed the king would cancel the banquet altogether. Call it off, they would tell him. There's no way your son is going to be honored today. Well, there's a way. <laughs> a way that your rejection helped to bring about. You see, friends, before the foundations of this world, God determined. He sovereignly decreed and made certain That his son would be acknowledged. His son would be celebrated. That his son would be exalted and revered. That has always been 100% guaranteed. So when the son came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, God just took back their invitations. And handed them out to others. That's how Jesus describes it in this parable. And that's how it happens in real life. If these first people won't give me glory by honoring my son. I'll raise up others who will. Either way, Christ Jesus is going to get his feast. The only question is, what sort will be gathered around his table? From whose mouth will he receive his praise? Those who had been entrusted with the kingdom, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, others of the religious elite, they had forfeited their place. By rejecting the king and his son. Isn't that what Jesus had already indicated in the preceding parable? When he told them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to another people, producing the fruit of it. Well, this is what he's talking about. Handing out invitation to those who were not by societal standards part of the welcomed class. Surely this would have included the tax collectors and sinners hanging out on the sides of the road as well as the lowly Gentiles who were still far off at the time of Christ's teaching. Now, of course, their inclusion in the kingdom of heaven was not a new idea in the mind and heart of God, this was always going to be the plan as promised throughout the Old Testament. As he says in Hosea, recited by Paul, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. sad as it might have been for those national Hebrews to have rejected their Messiah what an opportunity it has afforded to the rest of us that by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles not to every one of them individually but as a people they now have the chance to enter in, no matter how good or bad they are in themselves. Perhaps you notice that the slaves in verse 10 gathered together all they found, both evil and good, to fill the wedding hall with guests. They called the good and bad alike because their invitation to this feast has nothing at all to do With their virtue, their merit, or their quality of character. Every guest on this list is unworthy of the opportunity and undeserving of the call. The original guests hadn't been invited because of their moral or spiritual superiority. Neither were the newly invited guests. Upon what? Was their invitation based, you ask? If not for their inner quality, their standing in their community, their character traits, what then is their invitation based upon? Well, they were invited because the king chose to invite them. And unlike those first respondents, who shrugged their shoulders, went about their business, and violently opposed the decree, this group of tax collectors and sinners, this group of prostitutes and thieves, this group of heathens, Gentiles, they appreciated the king's gesture. They valued The opportunity. And they filled that wedding hall with praise. Yeah? The king throws his feast to honor the son. Those who were invited initially refused to come. So the king extended the invitation to men and women who would respond appropriately. but only those dressed in the proper attire will remain guests of the king. Take a look again at verse 11. The slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless, knowing that he was guilty. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, we live in a Christian culture today. That continually tries to attract people by saying, Come just as you are. But then we open the Bible to passages like this one, and we realize pretty quickly that just as you are gets you thrown out of God's presence into the damnable darkness. Obviously, You can't come just as you are. That's as absurd as it is unbiblical. The question is, well, then what? I have to clean myself up? Put on my best clothing? Impress the Lord with my works before I approach the cross of Christ? No. None of that will get you a seat at the banqueting table either. Well, now I'm just all sorts of confused, huh? If you can't come just as you are, nor clothe yourself in acceptable garments, how do you become acceptable? So you can remain forever at the feast. By putting on the white robe of Christ's righteousness. That's the dress code. And in the kingdom of heaven, friends, it is strictly enforced. That's the point Jesus is trying to make by inserting this additional judgment clause into his teaching. There's really no way that anyone who accepted the king's invitation could have been expected to come properly attired themselves. After all, this ragtag bunch had been rounded up from every street corner, every sidewalk, every nook and cranny of the kingdom. They had no clothes befitting such an occasion. But the fact that all of the dinner guests were dressed in proper wedding attire save one assures us that the king had provided their clothing himself. And that was not unheard of in their culture. In fact, we could cite many examples where festal dress was offered by the host to replace whatever the guests had previously been wearing. Everyone in that wedding hall was adorned that way. Except one. Who, for the sake of illustration, slipped past the guards while they were distracted. This is the man who responded in some way to the king's invitation But was never actually transformed. Believing that he could stand in God's presence just the way he was. In the words of John MacArthur, that man was arrogantly defying royal protocol, hellbound, and determined to remain himself. Well, everyone who has ever tried to remain himself or herself has experienced this same kind of judgment with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. You cannot stay who you were. You can't remain in your old garments. You got to put on the righteous robe of Christ. It's a gift from your heavenly host who gives new clothes to all of the redeemed. Just look what he did for the priest Joshua. A man who was clothed in filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, Isaiah wrote in chapter 61 of his prophecy. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Without the proper attire, this man at the banquet simply could not remain at the feast. Because though he coexisted with God's people for a while, though he gave some measure of response, he was found wanting in the judgment. One of many who were called, but not among the few Who are really chosen. That's how Jesus sums up this teaching. In verse 14. Highlighting the reality of. And difference between. God's general. And effectual call. To salvation. As we see in this parable. The broad. Inclusive general invitation. To come and partake. This is proclaimed to all people everywhere. Some ignore it, some oppose it, others respond to it in a more positive way. But no matter who they are or where they stand, the general call of the gospel goes out to everyone. But that's different than the effectual calling of the Lord, which reaches out only to those upon whom the Spirit is redemptively working such that everyone who is effectually called will respond appropriately by wrapping themselves in the righteousness of Christ. In the end, they are the only ones sitting around Christ's table. In the end, they are the only ones counted among the redeemed. You see? Many are called. Few are chosen. May our response to Christ prove that we are among the few. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come. An opportunity that might not have been initially ours, but one by your grace that you have extended nonetheless. And We are so extremely grateful for it. Lord, but help us, unlike those first respondents, those leaders of Israel, those Jewish people throughout the ages... May we never take the invitation for granted. May we come to value it and love it and run to it at the chance that we might stand in the presence of you and your son, Jesus, with all praise, glory, and honor unto him. Lord, humble us Help us be rid of this idea that I can remain myself and also come to you. Oh, it's fallacy, Lord. Help dispel it from our minds and our hearts. We need to be transformed. We need to be changed so thoroughly and completely that when people look at us, we're not even there anymore. It's just you and the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, adorning our attire. Oh, Lord, I pray we would come that way, that we might be received, that we might celebrate with you all our days, that we might get to sing praise and exalt your Son, the one and only Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen and amen we trust you were challenged by the word of the lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in montrose or want to connect with pastor matt come worship with us at 9:30 every sunday along lake avenue